Amen. All right, if you have your Bible with you tonight, let's turn to Joel and Joel chapter 1. So he's the second of the minor prophets. You have Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you just turn to the book of Matthew and keep turning to the left, eventually you'll run into him. Just a little book, three chapters, and we are in chapter 1. We're going to back up a little bit and go all the way back to the title of the book. And I wanted to point out something to you I think will be a blessing. Okay. So... If you found your place there in Joel uh, chapter 1, notice in, uh, in the beginning there, I don't know what your Bible says, mine simply says Joel as the title. And then in verse 1 of the, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Now Joel's name means Jehovah is God. J-O is a contraction of Jehovah and E-L is a contraction of uh, Elohim, which is translated God. So in your Bible, Jehovah is, is uh, written out in capital letters L-O-R-D. So if you notice in chapter 2, verse 13, Joel's name is actually one of the many prophets' names that are hidden in his own book. And so if you notice in verse 13 of chapter 2, and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. You see it there? The Lord, that's the J-O of his name, your God, that's Elohim, that's the E-L of his name. So his name is actually hidden in his own book. That happens with Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 31, it happens with Ezekiel. In uh, chapter 34, verse 16, it happens here in Joel's prophecy. Also in Micah, in chapter 7, verse 18. Zephaniah, in chapter 2, verse 3. And then with Malachi, in chapter 3, verse 1. But right there, it's within his own prophecy. Just an interesting little side note. We had said last time that the theme of this book is the day of the Lord. Tonight we'll talk about a little bit about what the day of the Lord is. Uh, means in relation to this. And Joel, if you'll remember, he's preaching to the southern kingdom. That's the two tribes in the south. And you remember which two tribes those are? The two tribes in the south that make up the southern kingdom of Judah. This is after the split. So everything was going great with David, but when David's son Solomon took over at the end of his reign, uh, the kingdom was divided. And uh, then at the end of his reign, his son Rehoboam and, uh, took over. And so, and then you had Jeroboam in the north. Uh, and there was a split there because of lack of real leadership. Jeroboam took the north, the northern ten kings, ten tribes, and uh, Rehoboam took the south. Does anybody remember the two southern tribes? Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin that's right. So that's who uh, Joel is preaching to. What else is down south other than those two tribes? Down south is the city of Jerusalem. So you had the temple there. 
And it's thought by many that Joel was actually preaching in front of that temple because in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. The trumpets would be sounded from the temple mount or the court area in order to draw uh, the Israelites in for different uh, gatherings, for assemblies and for feast days and things like that. So it's likely that he is just standing in front of the temple with all of that foot traffic all around him. Just imagine Joel, little Joel there preaching, and he's just surrounded by people going here and going there, uh, either coming in to make a sacrifice or leaving one thing or another. And he's definitely got the uh, priests around him and the Pharisees uh, listening into his his preaching. So he's preaching to the southern kingdom, and he's preaching before Babylon comes in, before the Babylonian invasion. We had said last week that in verse three, tell ye your children of it, and let their children tell their children and their children another generation. So it's going way out into the distant future. And the purpose of that verse is to say that the prophecy was not completely fulfilled in Joel's day. It would be completely fulfilled in a distant future time. So this is a predicted uh, prophecy and a predicted plague, really, of something that will be accomplished in the tribulation period. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 11, verse 6. This will be actually fulfilled... During the tribulation, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 6, you'll remember that we read, These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Talking about the two prophets during the tribulation period. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and uh, to smite the earth with plagues as oft as they will. So these two prophets that are preaching on behalf of the Creator God of the Bible, they are plaguing the world uh, at that time with, uh, with uh, in, infestations, droughts, uh, those kind of things. So that is going to be completely fulfilled during the tribulation period. All right? And then in verse 4, we read about the locust plague that uh, may have occurred prior to his prophecy or may occur shortly after he prophesied this. Those things were not totally certain. But we, we talk about them in basic terms. But now we're in verse 5. And what follows here is the effect of the plague, which I think was a predicted plague, on four groups of people, four groups within society. Verse 5, the drunkards. The effect of the coming plague, which would be devastating. The effect on the drunkards. And then in verse 9... The second group, the effect on the priests. And in verse 11, the effect on the vine dressers, or you could just say the farmers. The effect on the farmers. And then in verse 19, so you got the priests, the farmers, the drunkards, and verse 19, the prophet. O Lord, to thee will I cry. For the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. He's talking about a drought there and the resulting fires. Again, that will be completely fulfilled in the tribulation. But the preacher, he doesn't get out of it. When the hand of the Lord comes down in judgment... 
When God descends to judge, then uh, the preacher and all of the believers are judged right along with them. Now, no doubt, faithful believers who were warned of the coming invasion of Babylon were able to escape and leave and get away from it. But listen, when judgment falls, it falls on the Christians. So, when judgment falls on this country, uh, the judgment begins at the house of God, right? Judgment's going to come on everybody. There's going to come a time in this nation, and you've heard me talk about it since I got here. There will come a time when uh, preachers will be imprisoned for preaching the truth. There will come a time when you, uh, there will be greater persecution when you witness in the workplace or when you refuse to affirm uh, perverted lifestyles. There will come a time. There may come a time when, when uh, Christians are no longer uh, allowed to homeschool. That was illegal at one time. They may take that back. It, there may come a time when our Bibles are taken away from us. These things will happen. I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I'm just saying this is going to come. And as you get later and later in the church age, what does it say? Paul predicts that there will be perilous times. It will be more and more dangerous. There is coming a time in this country, it will come. It's not a matter of if. It will come when the economy collapses. And when that happens, you know, what, you know what happens. All the people in the Section 8 housing are going to start looting the other people. Uh, the people in the cities are going to go out into the suburbs. You know all, all of those things are going to happen. Um, it's going to get worse in this country before it, before it gets better, but it's going to get worse all over the world. You say, what's your point? When the judgment came, it affected the prophet... It affected the priests, it affected the farmers, and it affected the drunkards. It affected everybody. So what do I think is going to happen? Now, I don't know this for certain, and I'm no, no expert in this area, but communism is the leading ideology in the world. So people are thinking communists all over this world. If America turns to communism... Uh, if that's how America is kind of absorbed into the one world government, the new world order, I don't know how it will happen, but that's likely. It's likely that that would happen. Think of how that would affect everybody, you know. Uh, just, just things to think about. During, uh, during the Holocaust, you know, just to think of what we're really capable of in modern times. During the Holocaust, that wasn't that long ago. Uh, there's still survivors of that alive that meet every year. They say about 42% of the Jewish population was decimated during the Holocaust. That's modern. That's the modern world. That's what we're capable of. Uh, so we've seen, we've seen bad times. And we're probably going to see more. We're going to see another world war eventually. So... What I'm saying is when judgment comes in America, she's deserving of judgment, isn't she? Isn't she? Um, and when judgment comes, it's going to affect everybody. What's the job of the Christian during that time? To use it as an opportunity to keep doing what we've always been doing. You know? And if the, ta if the government takes away the uh, tax exemption from churches and those kind of things, or they start confiscating 
buildings and those kind of things happen that we're all afraid of and stuff, it doesn't make any difference. You know what we're going to do? We're just going to keep on keeping on. Just keep on doing what we're doing. It'll shut down a lot of the bigger works. It wouldn't really affect this church. Uh, so I don't think it'd affect really any church in this area uh, all that much. So the effect uh, on these four groups. Now, it was warned, uh, so it wouldn't have been a surprise. Let's look at Deuteronomy 28. This coming judgment that he spoke of, the insect plague, the coming drought, and then the invasion of a foreign power, meaning Babylon, it was warned about. So this was no surprise in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. And I, as far as those things go, as, as far as like uh, conspiracies and the reset and all that kind of stuff goes, it's good to know a little bit about that, but if you go to seed on that, you're going to lose your sweet spirit and your, your light's going to be dimmed and you won't be the witness that you should be for Jesus Christ. Um, we're just supposed to be witnesses and leading people to Christ, discipling them. That's the job of the ministry of the local church and then learning how to care for one another like Christ cared for us. So Deuteronomy 28 and verse 38, but I think it does, uh, it does serve us well in getting us to not hold on so tightly to the things of this world. Because the Lord might say, I'm going to need to take that away from you, you know, as we get closer to the end of the church age. Verse 38, Thou shalt carry much seed. Uh, this is Deuteronomy 28. Now he's talking about the judgment that will come if they, uh, you know, the, the cursings that come, if they disobey the uh, covenant and break their covenant and disobey the law. Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field, and shalt gather but little in, for the locust shall consume it. You see? They were warned about it. God would judge them with locusts. Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but shalt neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. Well, I read something about a palmer worm, canker worm. In there, I guess that does belong in the Bible. <laughs> I guess we shouldn't change that. That's just me being tongue in cheek. Okay, uh, thou shalt have olive trees throughout all thy coasts, but thou shalt not anoint thyself with the oil, for thine olive shall cast his fruit. Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. You see, they were warned early on about this. Not only that, but Joel warned about a nation that's going to come up upon the land strong and without number. And if you notice in that same chapter of Deuteronomy in verse 49, it warned that God would send a Gentile nation in to judge his people. The Lord shall bring a nation in verse 49 of Deuteronomy 28 against thee from far from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. There's the Chaldean language of the Babylonians. and A nation of fierce countenance which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. 
They have a kill them all kind of a mentality. And he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land until thou be destroyed, which also shall not leave thee either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of thy kine, your cows, or flocks of thy sheep, until he have destroyed thee. So he's talking about an invading nation, and they'll destroy everything. They'll ruin your economy. Back in Joel chapter 1, this was forewarned in... uh, Joel chapter 1, the, the drunkards, that's the only national sin that Joel mentions is drunkenness. The uh, party's over for them because the vineyards will be wasted and then there will be no new product. In verse 6, For a nation has come up upon thy land strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. Now, what he prophesies is going to, uh, it's going to involve some details that were not fulfilled with the Babylonian invasion. And what he's prophesying will go out into a future application. We'll talk about that more in chapter 2. But uh, verse 7, He hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean, bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. The vine tree and the fig tree, those are pictures of Israel in the Bible. Israel is pictured as three trees in the Bible. And I think there's significance to them. Uh, Clarence Larkin, he, he taught that. But uh, Israel is pictured as a fig tree, an olive tree, and a grapevine. Do you remember that uh, story in the Gospels where Jesus walks up to a fig tree and he curses it and the fig tree withers right in front of him? Um, you ever wondered what that was all about? That fig tree is a picture of Israel. And they weren't produ- And he went up to, what did he do? He went up to the fig tree and he was going to get something off of it to eat. And there wasn't nothing there, and so he cursed it. And so he's saying of his nation, Israel, I'm coming up to you to get fruit, and there's no fruit there. And so you're cursed. That's a picture of Deuteronomy 28, right there. And you know what? Christians are supposed to be fruit bearers. Now, He's not going to curse us and damn our souls. If you're saved, you're saved, okay? But Christians are supposed to bear some fruit, aren't they? And I bet sometime he wants, to, he wants to come up to us sometime and just pick some fruit and enjoy some fruit off of our life, some love, joy, peace, you know, those kind of things. And he might come up to some of us and say, there's just no fruit there for me to enjoy. You know, you're created for his pleasure, for his enjoyment, Say, why did God create me? He just likes us. He just enjoys us, but when we're producing the fruit, and He wants to come and to enjoy that. I I saw, (laughs) one time I heard a preacher preach, um, and uh, he used the illustration of a Mountain Dew bottle. And this guy, you just have to know him, he was was different. He was wild. But uh, he had this Mountain Dew bottle, but it, it left an impression I never forgot. And he said, some of you young people... You're like this Mountain Dew bottle, and he, and he, he loved to drink Mountain Dews. He always had Mountain Dew. And he t- tightened it real tight, and he said, God comes up to you and tries to get a drink out of your life, and, and, and can't get the, you got the lid on, you got, it, you got the lid on so nothing can come out. You're hiding what you are. You're a Christian, and God can't get any refreshment and enjoy, enjoyment out of you. And he, he bit onto the bottle and started twisting it with his teeth, and he was talking about that idea that the Lord wants to come and get some fruit off of you. And it made, a, it made its point. <laughs> it sure did. 
You know, so he says, uh, this judgment, therefore, will bark the fig tree, strip the bark off, clean bare, and uh, to the point to where it was white. And they say that that's what the, lo- the locust will do. The locusts uh, will even eat uh, wood off of doors. They are pretty fierce little critters, and they'll bark a, a fig tree or any tree uh, and get it to the point to where it's just white all the way down to the wood sometimes. And so he says, uh, since you're not producing fruit, I'm going to, you're going to be wasted. Verse 8, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth. Now it's getting into the effect on the priests. And he's saying to lament, to sorrow. This is part of their repentance that he's calling for. Uh, to lament means to be sorrowful, to weep. Uh, it's something that you express. So uh, uh, lament how? Like a virgin girded with sackcloth. We've talked about sackcloth before. For the husband of her youth. Now, this shows the binding nature of Jewish uh, betrothal, which we call it getting engaged. In Jewish culture, the betrothal period, which I guess is about a year, uh, was so binding. It was binding as a marriage was. So how can you have a virgin and a husband at the same time, you see? It's because they're in the betrothal period. So imagine this young lady. She's been dreaming all her life. Girls, I think, start dreaming about marriage by the time they're five years old or something. Um, All her life, this wonderful day, she's got her wedding planner, you know, She's got the music picked out, the service. Uh, she doesn't want the, uh, the old-fashioned organ anymore. She wants a cello or something like that. and uh, She wants to head out of the auditorium to the Batman theme uh, when she's going out and all this kind of stuff, and, which is just silly, some of the stuff they do these days. Uh, she got it all planned out. And then all of a sudden, her husband suddenly dies tragically dies and she's just she's overwhelmed she's she's been uh, maybe she's known him for years he said lament like that the meat offering and the drink offering is uh, cut off from the house of the Lord so because the vines are wasted therefore the priests they don't have the wine for the drink offering they don't have the meat offering because the cattle have been destroyed the Lord's ministers Mourn, he said. He wants the priest to mourn. <laughs> Listen, there's just, there's, it's not positive. This is not a positive, upbeat, feel good message. It's just not. But you know what? That's the prophets of the Bible. The message of Noah as he was gathering everything into the ark, all the way up until the day when he brought his family inside and God closed the door. The message for 150 years was not. God is going to do something great in your life. That was not his message. The message was, God's going to send a flood, get in the boat. The message of Amos, Amos, that old stern country preacher, was not, smile, God loves you. That wasn't his message. The message of John the Baptist uh, this wild Nazarite with, uh, with bold preaching. His message was not back your truck up to God's storehouse of blessing because God's going to dump a blessing on you. Back it up, back up the truck. That wasn't his message. 
The message of Peter and of Paul, the Spirit-filled apostles of Jesus Christ, was not, you can live your best life now. It was not, be the best you that you can be. It wasn't that. The message of a real prophet, a real preacher, is in one word. Repent. Repent. That was his message. It's not a positive one, but guess what? It's good for you. It's like medicine. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't feel good to take it, but it's good for you. It'll heal. And the, me- the medicine of this preaching of repent, sorrow for your sin, it's a good medicine for a sin-sick soul. So while uh, it might look negative on the outset, it's exactly what they needed. The field is wasted. The land mourneth, he says in verse 10. The corn languisheth, the new wine, that's grape juice, is dried up, the oil languisheth. He says, be ye ashamed. Now listen, they're all having a big party. It's it's just like America right now. You watch any television show, if it's a popular television show, you watch it, it's a big party, okay? Uh, And it's like saying to our people today in America, lament, mourn, weep for your sin." Be ashamed of yourself. Well, they're anything but ashamed. We're having pride parades, you know. People saying, well, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm not ashamed. That's the attitude today. And here's a preacher saying, be ye ashamed. We need more preachers like this. O ye husbandmen, that's the farmers, howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat, for the barley, because of the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, and he just keeps on going on. The fig tree languisheth, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. He's saying the problem is with you priests. Gird yourselves and lament. Howl, ye ministers, of the altar, come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. But you know what he's telling them? He's telling them, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to show God, God in heaven, who looks down and he sees the children of men. He's watching us. He sees every one of us. He hears what we say. He watches how we treat our parents. He watches how we treat our children. He knows the real condition of our home. He sees the land. He sees every uh, group within the society. And he says, this is what we need to do. And he's a faithful preacher. He's saying, we need to repent. We need to show God we're serious by putting on this rough garment called sackcloth that's not comfortable. And uh, instead of living in comfort, comfort and luxury and a plush, indulgent lifestyle, fast and mourn and put on sackcloth and show God you're serious. And God will repent of the judgment that he's going to bring. That's what he's saying. So he says in verse 14, Sanctify ye a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and cry unto the Lord. Now listen. Um, What do you think we could do around this church to really get a crowd? Let's say we're planning the calendar, okay? The church calendar. 
we really want to get a crowd in here. I mean, we just want to pack the place out. What could we do? Well, I bet if we got uh, a gospel singer, amen, get us a gospel singing group in here, and a lot of them will come to smaller churches. Um, there's some real good ones. Going to be some good ones at the Ark. Real good singers at the Ark. The Martins are going to be there. I like the Martins music. The McCamey's are going to be there. Uh, Gold City and a lot of different ones. But uh, you get the, let's, let's do that. I bet we can pack this place out. But listen, what do you think God's interested in? Nothing wrong. I'm not taking anything away from music. I like good music. What do you think God would like for us to do? In America. What do you think God, I'm just any church. Don't think of our church necessarily, just any church. You know what God would want? God says, first of all, this is what I want a church to do, first of all. So this is of first importance for the ministry of the local church, prayer. Okay, so we put our prayer meeting on Wednesday night. It's the least attended service of the church calendar. It always has been. Why is that? Because what's important to God is not important to God's people. Uh, It is to you because you're here. What if we said, we're going to call a solemn assembly and we want all of you to just come and I want you to fast and I want you just to put on some raggedy old clothes, nothing fancy, and uh, just come in here, you know, no makeup, it's not a show, just come in here and just, we're just going to get together and we're just going to cry out to God and we're going to we're going to confess our sins and, uh, and we're going to ask God to forgive us. And We're going to have a repentance service. What do you think would happen? How many people do you think would come? Man, it'd be a small group. But you know, that's what he's doing. He's calling them to a solemn assembly. Listen, if I gave you all year, okay? If I gave you all year, I said, listen, uh, in, we'll plan it in September. Who's doing you know, anything in September? We're going to do it in September. That way you make sure that you don't... I'm going to give you a whole year and let you know it's coming. That way you don't plan vacations there. You don't plan this. You don't plan that. You get time off work. Uh, take some time off work for it. Uh, how many people do you think would come? They wouldn't. My point is, is this was not a popular message, but that's what he's telling the priest to do. He's saying, look, this is what we need to do, guys, because judgment is coming. We are going to get it. We are in trouble, guys. We need to repent and call out to God because I know this about God. He's a merciful God. He loves to show mercy. He doesn't want to come in judgment. That's a strange work for God to bring judgment, but He will because He's holy and He promised us that this would happen. You see, so He wants the priest to call that serious assembly and He even instructs them on how to repent. Let me show you in chapter 2. This is the instructions on how to repent. So he's giving them instructions, telling them how to teach the people once they get there of what kind of repentance would get the Lord's attention. In verse 12, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me. You see that? Turn me. Turn ye. That's the, that's the repentance. Even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping, and with mourning. If you struggle with something, I can tell you how to get victory, because I've done it. I'll tell you how to get victory. 
you go into the room of your house where you can get away from everybody, maybe wait till nobody's home but you. When you're away from everybody, you go into a room all by yourself and you turn out the lights and you get down on the floor and you just say, God, I'm not coming out of this room until I get victory over this thing. And you just start to pray and you just pray and you pour your heart out to God and you say, God, I ought to weep over this thing that this thing that's in my life has taken control of my life. This is something that Jesus suffered and died for. This is something that I would be ashamed of if Jesus were to visit my home and to see me doing this activity uh, and would, when in truth he really has. And, and, and you just stay there with God and you say, God, break my heart over this thing. And guess what? He will. And the tears will come and the weeping will come. And you just keep on praying and praying and talking to the Lord and then when you feel like God has moved your heart and caused you to sorrow over that sin that's keeping you from having fellowship with him and hindering your witness and causing you to be uh, carnal and walk in the flesh, when you, get, when you feel like you've, got, you've touched the throne, then you just wait there in silence until the peace of God just comes over you. And you don't come out of that room until... until uh, you're clean of everything. And then say, Lord, forgive me of secret sins, things I'm not even aware of. I just claim the blood of Jesus Christ. And you just, like some preacher said, draw a circle around yourself and don't come out of that circle until everything's clean. And then you come out of there knowing the kind of God that you're dealing with. He delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. But... Uh, Churches are filled with sin because preachers, their lives are sinful. Preachers aren't what they should be in this country. And that's what Joel is telling the priests. It needs to start with you. That's why he preached at the priests. And then call a solemn assembly and have them come to the temple and assemble there. And then when they get there, tell them how to repent. Tell them to turn to the Lord with all their heart. Don't hold anything back. Just ask for God to shine that light of truth into the darkest recesses of your hearts and don't hide anything from Him. Let Him into every room in your heart. Don't say, Lord, you can go anywhere but into this little room because I'm keeping some stuff over here hidden for myself. No, you let Him go into every little room of your house. And... Uh, let him deal with you. Turn ye come with all your heart and with fasting. That's depriving yourself of food. Sometimes fasting to deprive yourself of uh, that so that you don't have to worry about the necessity of feeding yourself or drinking yourself in order to spend longer periods of time studying or praying. That's what he's dealing with there. And with weeping and with mourning. And I'll tell you, even being a grown man, um, I've done that. And listen, it touches God's heart. It touches God's heart. It really does. It's, this isn't emotionalism. And rend your heart and not your garments. So he's saying here, turn unto the Lord with all the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Okay? So what they would do, them hypocrites, 
is uh, whenever something bad happened, the priests would be like, oh, the people are sinning. This is terrible what's going on in Israel. And so they rend their garment. They tear their shirt. And they walk around to say, I'm just, I'm, I'm uh, mourning over the sins of the land, says the priests. So we would come into church and tear our clothes and say, it's just so terrible what's going on in our country and all these things. And what he's saying to his people is rend your heart, not your garments. Because God sees the heart. God knows the truth. What we are in our prayer closets at home, do you understand what I mean by that? What we are when we're alone with God, that's what we really are and nothing more. So he's just calling for a real heart uh, change. Now look at Acts 26, if you would, with me. Here's Paul's definition. If you want a good definition about repentance, to put the end, uh, the, you know, the controversy about what real repentance is, if you want to know uh, how to repent, or say you really want to please the Lord and you just want to know, when will I know if I've actually repented in a way that God says is sufficient? Well, the Bible tells us this is the Apostle Paul. He's our Apostle. And he is teaching us what he preached during his ministry. So Acts 26, verse 20. Acts 26, verse 20. And really you could look at verse 18. 18 is true conversion. If a person gets saved and their life don't change, we have every reason to uh, at least be suspicious that there wasn't a real conversion there. But verse 20, but showed, this is what Paul did. He showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea. See, he started with the Jews, then he went out to the Gentiles. And then to the Gentiles, and this is what he preached, that they should repent. Repentance literally means a change of mind. You want to know what repentance is? It literally means a change of mind, but that's not enough. It's not just to change your mind about something, but it has to be, that's the definition, it has to be that because God repents and God has never sinned. So repentance at its basic meaning is to change your mind, okay? But to repent and to turn to God and to do works, meet for repentance. So this is my definition. And I don't know if I took this from somebody, but as far as I know, I didn't. But you know how subconsciously you can think that you came up with something when you probably heard it somewhere before? I don't know. But look, this is my definition based on those words at the end of verse 20. Repentance is a change of mind followed by a change of direction. See? Repent and turn to God followed by a change of direction, resulting in a changed life and do works, meet or fitting. If you really are repentant, let's see it. Do works meet or appropriate for repentance. Repentance is a change of mind, followed by a change of direction, resulting in a changed life. That's what God wants. That's what God wants from us. And guess what? It's a lifelong process. Repentance is a lifelong process, just deeper and deeper and more sincere and genuine repentance throughout the entire life. That's what God is doing. He wants greater repentance. There is initial repentance when you get saved. There's initial repentance. Uh, 
where you're deciding to turn from your sin and turn to God by faith in Jesus. But then there's continual repentance throughout the whole life. I'm not done repenting. Sometimes, some weeks, I, like, I get there about 98%. I'm being awful generous with myself. I'm, I'm, I'm 98% of what I think I should be as like a husband or a dad. But you know, there's that 2% where I kind of lost it. <laughs> you know? Well, I'm, I'm saying, Lord, help me with my temper. Help me to be more patient. You know? Help me to be more of a man of prayer. Stuff like that. Um, it's uh, a sin not to pray. God forbid that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you, said Samuel. Uh, it, just things like that. Okay? Um, deeper and deeper repentance. That's what the Lord's calling for. As we close now, when you think about the conditions that are necessary for genuine repentance in, in the life of a child of God, okay? All over this country, this country is plagued by sins that I just don't want to list and mention. I just don't want to. But we know of them. Okay, what, what is necessary for repentance in the life of a child of God? You could think of Psalm 51 and everything that it says there. But I think that these things are necessary. If you think of something else to add to it, let me know. But recognition of sin and guilt. You have to first recognize it, okay? If you just think about a child, when a child does something wrong in the home, and they say, I'm sorry, well, sometimes you know that they mean it, and sometimes they don't when they say they're sorry. And what do we say? We always say, what? If you're sorry, then don't do it again, right? It's just that simple. Lord, forgive me for doing this sin and help me not to do it again. I didn't mean to rhyme there, but that was, that was pretty good. That's how I pray. That's how I pray. So recognition of sin and guilt. Yes, yes, guilt. Guilt is not a bad thing. Sorrow for sin. Now, I don't go around feeling guilty all the time. I keep short accounts with God. You know, I, I walk around with the joy of the Lord. But this is how you get the joy of the Lord. Sorrow for sin. You've got to have real sorrow for it and for being the kind of person that would do it. You see? A desire for forgiveness, a commitment to change, but don't forget about the part. Listen, as we, as we close, this is the last thing I want to say, and I think it represents God the best in this message. We must trust in a God who is merciful and forgiving. Trust in the God that is of great kindness, in Joel chapter 1, verse 13, and repenteth him of the evil. The God who doesn't want to chasten you. He's of great kindness. Trust that God is merciful and will forgive. That biblical repentance acknowledges that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness. Amen. Of great kindness. And did you know that a lot of church discipline is not in the form of like the negative, like uh, you're in trouble and now the congregation has to know about it and uh, you're going to get rebuked in front of everybody. That's not all of church discipline. Church discipline, most of the time, is just what we're doing right here. It's just letting God wash over you with His Word and saying to you, between you, it's just between you and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I know this has got to go, I know. Nobody else needs to know about it but me and you. This has got to go. Forgive me of that. Help me not to do it again. That's a lot of church discipline right there. So, um, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, we'll close there. Lord, I thank you for this uh, 
book tonight, this little book. Um, Lord, as we finished out chapter one tonight, um, Lord, I'm just, I'm thinking of how much this message is really, it's needed, it's needed in churches today. Um, but God, uh, only you can stir the hearts and only you can stir up churches to revival, to just thoroughly getting right with you and setting out to really serve you with a whole heart. I pray, Father, that you'd help us, help each one that's here, Lord, desiring to be close to you. That's why they're here tonight, desiring to be involved in the ministry of prayer. And uh, Lord, um, we, just, we just pray to you now. You, you uh, are, a, are, are a gracious, loving God. Uh, you're slow to anger. You're a God of mercy, uh, wanting to forgive, repenting of the evil and the judgment that you thought to bring. So, Lord, we just pray that you'd have mercy upon us, mercy upon this, this nation of ours, this great nation. I pray that you'd continue to use us as a lighthouse. And I pray, Father, for revival in all of your churches that are preaching the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.